the um, uh, setting is a little different this year. Uh, <clears throat> and part of me, of course, wishes it were in the chapel because it feels more, everybody had their glass of wine and their, it just felt a little bit more alcoholically potent. And, um, uh, and, and uh, I mean by that sort of informal, but the crowd is so strong that it needed to be moved here. Now, if I speak at about this volume, is that okay? Okay, thank you very much. And um, dear God, uh, give my words uh, the ability to pass our defenses and come into the depth of our needs. For Jesus' sake, amen. Um, this is just a few thoughts that I've had in uh, recent times that are... Um, always with uh, life, you're in a dialogue between your experience and your religious life and conviction. And that's really where I'm coming from. And the original title of this talk was God and the Dying Process. And it's such a heavy um, title that when I mentioned to someone that I love that this was my title, he said, well, I'm definitely not coming. Uh, I, and I understood that. I, I was sympathetic uh, with, with, with it. Um, but it is really about God and the dying process. And I hope it'll um, speak to you. I did want to start by saying that the Mockingbird conference this year feels different. It feels um, really deeper. It may just be me, and it may just be um, where we are given the last two years, but it feels um, Aaron's talk went to a level of depth and uh, tragic understanding coupled with authentic hopefulness coupled with that amazing video by Florence and the Machine that uh, quite surprised uh, this person. And then um, Sarah's, uh, the suitcase. Um, <laughs> I, I, I still can't think of anything else. And, um, the, uh, and Simeon's uh, direct uh, address about theory of change struck me as being um, theology at its finest in terms of life. Um, but for some reason, this seems to me to be uh, uh, as powerful as we've ever had it. And um, I want to start by saying that a tremendous problem that <clears throat> the world has, and certainly theology has, is the problem of narrative versus empirical observation. And I'm at this point so disillusioned with narrative and a tremendous need that so many have to project a narrative on life that it, um, I'm, I'm beside myself at times because a narrative is not the same as empirical observation. And if our um, understanding of life is about projecting a story onto a situation, 
it will always be inadequate. In other words, we need to be inductive rather than deductive. And people that use narratives, and it's very widespread to understand life, are being deductive. And that's not where you start in investigation. You start with induction. What do I see, and what does that teach me about reality? And I want to underline David Zoll's new book, the book on low anthropology. It has the potential to be a world-changing document because he's um, uh, sharing the power of an accurate as opposed to an inflated view of human nature. And I personally think that a lot of the problems that we have are because of an in inaccurate, inflated view of human nature, which inevitably crumbles in real life in some way or at some point. Now, I have to drink water. By the way, if you're a preacher, never drink water at the start of your sermon. So many clergy, they get into the pulpit, male and female, and they take a big thing of water before they start. And it's very um, uh, off-putting to the, to the person. Uh, Jacob, I'm going to get some water though now. Um, drink the water in the middle, but not before. Um, so what I wanted to do, all of that is intro to, um, to what I see in the aging process. And of course, a little bit of it comes out of experience, my own <clears throat> serious illness this time last year, and my wife's more serious illness currently. And um, I've watched and thought and reflected on the psychic effects of illness and aging in a way that feels new, but I hope it's mockingbird new and gospel new. And I want to start by reading a prayer that is quite celebrated. It was written by Cardinal Newman, and uh, if you're an Episcopal minister, you've um, said this prayer hundreds of times in connection with funerals. And it's a very um, celebrated prayer. And it goes like this. O oh Lord, support us all the day long until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in thy mercy, grant us a safe lodging and a holy rest and peace at the last. Now, if you've ever prayed that prayer publicly, raise your hand. I mean, this just has to be because it's been in the prayer book for 400, no, for 150 years. But as I faced um, the onset of serious illness and have watched it over the years, I realized that the prayer must have been written when John Henry Newman was about 40 because it's not true. It's an inaccurate portrayal of the aging process. It somehow implies that we get to a point when we can kind of gradually um, um, kind of subside from the heavy-duty pressure of 
walking around Union Square or trying to establish our lives, and we come to a point when we can gently, quietly downsize our lives and live lives of gradual, mitigated quiet and resignation until finally we're taken quietly in the middle of the night. But, but, but that's what it says. Um, but it's not true because the aging process is far more, not always, but it's far more characteristically characterized by sudden negativity. Um, a stroke, a heart attack, um, uh, I mean, how many people do I know up in Greenwich, Connecticut, who've died recently of burst aortic aneurysms? I mean, I, only six, but they were all 55, and it all happened in airports. Um, how many of people you know who were basically doing pretty well until they had a fall? And then that somehow jarred the situation, and it was not retreating quietly. It was a sudden, massive negation. And um, this is really what I wanted to talk about. It's the fact that the dying or aging process is not a gentle, quiet, Richard Rohr serenity prayer. I, I don't mean to, I know Richard Rohr and I admire him for much of what he's done, but I'm sure he doesn't think all the things he did 20 years ago. Um, I'm constantly faced with wonderful people I know who are my age, who I say, what are you doing? And they inevitably say, well, I've just come back from a fishing trip in Mexico. And I always say to myself, this is a man of 70, my age, who's acting like he was 45. And I love it. But it's, it's, um, it's words that you intend to eat later on because the, the body um, negates the future by sudden troubles. Um, I could tell you a million stories, but I don't need it because you know them. You have a mother who you thought was going to live to 90, and then something happened that was a surprise, or a father, or a brother, or a sister. And so what I wanted to say to you is that the um, power of the aging process is coming to terms with the fact that it is sudden, massive, overwhelming when it happens, and needs to, to be understood in that way. Um, and interestingly enough, this is, um, this, I'm going to give you some ideas that I've not shared before uh, in this setting at all. Um, what happens is that the uh, illness or the dying process or handicap negates just about everything you've ever been interested in doing. You lose your appetite. You lose your interest in 90% of the things that you thought were important. 90%, maybe 92. You, you, um, you, 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 you just find yourself not, I mean, I, I couldn't even watch movies when I was as sick as I was. I could only watch 24 minutes of input, and then I had to stop. So Twilight Zone episodes, of course, became the, you know, and, and Mary got really sick of it. She said, how many more Twilight Zone episodes do we have that are 57 years old? And I said, Mary, I can't take in anything more. Gone are, what do you call it when you watch nine episodes in a row? Gone or been, it's not because they're not good. 
but you just can't do it any longer. Reading, are you kidding? I mean, I say, Mary, how, are you reading anything? You know, well, maybe 20 pages. So what I'm saying is that the advent of aging is usually much more sudden than we'd like, and it negates a tremendous amount of what you've done. And it, the funny thing is it also um, negates the future. Now, I was struck by the superficiality of what Madeleine Albright said to Bill or Hillary Clinton as her last words that were quoted very, very positively in the addresses that were given in the National Cathedral on Tuesday. I'm sure you saw the service, and I have great respect for Madeleine Albright and great respect for many of the people who were speaking, but apparently when someone very well known called her two weeks before she died, she said, he said, well, how are you doing? And she said, I don't want to talk about that. Let's, let's not get into that. All I want to talk to is how can our policy towards the Ukraine better reflect our values? And she was praised for being focused completely on her children and grandchildren, as it were, rather than um, her particular individual situation. And while I, at one level, what she said is very powerful and uh, altruistic, um, I felt it was, that's negated. Because what, what possibly can that mean when your whole existence is about to be negated in any empirical way? Um, I admire her for it, but I wish she'd said, but now let's also talk about me. <laughs> Who am I in the middle of this? And um, so I thought I would um, try to say, what have I said so far? Great conference. Cardinal Newman must have not written that letter from the standpoint of the wisdom of age, that prayer. Um, and mortality negates a tremendous amount of things in which we are, have been interested. I think um, one of the speakers this morning even mentioned someone who was dying who'd actually lost interest at the real point, the last 16 hours. I think we were talking about Beth Capo, someone we knew very well. Wonderful woman, but in the last 16 hours of her life, she really wasn't interested in talking about her husband, whom she loved, or her children at that point. It was fading very rapidly. And I want to, to talk about what you... What do you really concern yourselves with when you're either dying or under physical distress? I mean, you've had your experiences. What was it like when you were really in trouble um, physically at any age? What, what, was, what did you think about? Well, I would say that about one thing is not negated. I hope this isn't too heavy, but hey. Um, um, my name is Aaron Zimmerman, and uh, I, uh, Florence Welsh, and she had the right to talk about these things. Um, what is not negated? Well, what is not negated, and I, I speak both from experience and from watching others, is um, what I call phosphorus. Now, I've used this metaphor in a uh, talk for Mockingbird before, but... Um, Phosphorus is a substance that is, um, shines in darkness. 
It's a chemical that when you put it on your hands or your face in the middle of darkness, it's like a fiery light. And there's a Sherlock Holmes movie that is entirely based upon the principle that a murderer disguises his midnight murders by means of phosphorus, which makes the villagers believe there is a monster out, not a serial killer. And Sherlock Holmes ultimately understands that it's phosphorus. But the good side of phosphorus is that when you're really sick and you can only watch a Twilight Zone episode, the only thing that you really think about in my experience is the phosphorus of your life. You will think about the phosphorus of your life. And the phosphorus is almost always points of unconditional love towards yourself. Those are the things that will have phosphorescent quality. They shine in the darkness because they are the closest you've ever been to God. Because God is the love and the mercy of non-rejection. And when that happens to you, you're in, you're in direct connection with God. So this is why you usually think about relationships. You will. You will suddenly think about a moment in your marriage or in a first marriage or in an earlier phase when someone loved you in such a way that you cannot shake it. You can completely forget the work you did for 40 years. You can, or 20 years. You can forget all sorts of interests. I mean, I will never forget 1950s science fiction movies. I mean, that's for me the most important thing in the world. But if I, if I, if I, if I did forget them, but the, the one thing I really can't forget is, um, is the connection that deeply altruistic love towards myself um, came. Um, similarly, negatively, you sometimes can't forget rejection. There are people who carry to the very last moment of their life a resentment over, a ro usually it's romantic, but sometimes it's professional, a rejection that is so visceral that it's kind of a negative phosphorus. I mean, I had one experience in my early ministry in the church that involved a catastrophic rejection on the part of about nine church administrative people, and I never quite recovered. I read the obituary of one of the men who treated me terribly in 1974, and on the one hand, I was so delighted. And, uh, and so, but you know what I said to Mary? I said, you know, Canon so-and-so died during COVID, so he had no funeral, ha, ha, ha. No, but what I said, <laughs> but, but we had had dinner. We had had dinner 40 years after the event with this chap. Very old-type Episcopalian, but very manipulative and Byzantine. And um, uh, we'd had dinner, and I had, he was much reduced, and I had desperately wanted to tell him off. It's about 15 years ago. I wanted to say, do you realize the impact of what you had on this little young, newly ordained person who didn't know squat, and you used all that power to subdue him just because you didn't like what he thought about the World Council of Churches? I mean, you, I'm even getting mad about it now. And I didn't, have the, I didn't have the guts to tell him. I didn't have the guts to tell him at the, at the dinner party. So I told Mary one thing. A, I'm glad he's dead. B, I'm terribly upset that I never told him what I really thought of him. I mean, think about that. Here I am, 71, and I'm still, did anybody in your life? Is there one individual? Now, 
But most of the phosphorus will be someone who has loved you, especially when you were not lovable. Someone who, usually for a guy, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a romantic partner, or for a woman, it's a romantic partner, who really um, showed in a time of deep distress that they truly cared about you. Um, and that is what remains forever in life. So the third thing I said was that while the many things are negated, the most important things are um, the phosphorus of unconditional mercy and altruistic love directed towards yourself at some point in your life. And right now, think about one of those. There's probably one. It could be a teacher. Could be a sixth grade teacher. Could be a grandmother. It would be very nice if it were the woman you're married to. It would be lovely if it were the man you're married to. That would be really good. Not always so. Um, and I want to read to you, I'm getting near the end. I want to read to you a quote from Joseph von Sternberg. Joseph von Sternberg was the Hollywood director who came over from Austria in the 20s. And he uh, was friends with Marlena Dietrich. And he made five unbelievably powerful movies with Marlena Dietrich. They're some of the greatest movies ever made. Go home and see Shanghai Express. They're profoundly Christian, three of the five. Um, and yet they're totally Marlena Dietrich. And, um, Joseph von Sternberg said this about Morocco, a movie he made in 1932 with an unforgettable ending. Anybody seen it? it it's, it's so, even though it's 1932, it, the, the ending is so surprising. I mean, you, you won't recover. Don't see it. Um, but von Sternberg said, when asked about the ending of Morocco, he wrote this. The average human being lives behind an impenetrable veil and will disclose his deep emotions only in a crisis which robs him of control. Repeat that. The average human being lives behind an impenetrable veil and will disclose his deep emotions only in a crisis which robs him of control. Well, um, that is what illness and the dying process does. And I want to plead with you and then say one other thing and then I'm finished. I want to plead with you to um, find yourself a way to get to where von Sternberg uh, admonishes us to be. Because there's not a person here who probably doesn't have something important that is felt very deeply, that is hidden behind an almost impenetrable veil. And um, the last thing I want to say about that is that I'm giving a lot of thought to, this is my last little point, the point of dissolution. Now, what is the point of dissolution? This is really what I think. The point of dissolution is when your soul or your invisible self that's thinking and feeling right now is separated from your body at death. We know it happens because we've, we've all been with people we love with their bodies, right? We've all, we've all uh, um, 
We've all been with people that we love and we look at the body in the casket, if it's an open casket, and we say, mom isn't there. <laughs> I wish she was. It looks like her a little bit, but mom is not there. <laughs> but that is not my wife. It looks like her, but she's just not there. I don't know where she is, people will say, but she's not there. And I want you to anticipate the moment of dissolution in your life. I want you to, 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 jump, to, to jump the gun on it. Because what's going to happen is you're going to reach a point when um, the, that moment is there. Sometimes it'll happen in a car crash uh, where you won't have a chance. But let's imagine now you could put yourself in that position. Say something before you're taken away and cannot say it. I mean, you'll say it to God in some form. There's some kind of eternity where you may, but at that point, you're leaving your life and you won't be able to communicate anymore in the way that someone can hear. Say what your pain is. Say what your, your deepest feeling is. Someone who's here in the congregation uh, tonight invited Mary and me to see a play called The Christians by Lucas Nath. That's spelled H-N-A-T-H. He teaches at uh, NYU, but he grew up in a Pentecostal assembly in Orlando. And he's a very good guy, apparently, and grew up in a very conservative Christian fellowship. And he hasn't completely, um, he hasn't completely rejected it, even though he teaches in NYU. And um, I, th that didn't come out right. But he... Uh, Lucas Knoth, the climax of the play, which is about a conservative pastor who becomes a liberal theologically and wrecks his church, but he has a African-American youth pastor. And the African-American youth pastor, at the end of the play, is visiting his mother. And his mother is an atheist for a variety of reasons. She is a passionate, unmitigated atheist. And he's ministering to his mother in the play in the hospital. And he's desperately trying to at least open to her the possibility that there is a God. And, and she needs to be open to that as she dies. Because she's literally at the point of dissolution. And he fails. And in the play, because I have the play, um, it says, suddenly a look passes over her face. She's, she's, she's gone. And for an instant, her son sees her at a split second after dissolution. And in her eyes, she is obviously falling an incredible distance in total darkness. And there is absolute panic in her eyes. <laughs> a light little play here. Um, but... I thought about that, a very courageous writer, he actually puts a character at the point of dissolution where there is no hope of any kind, and the, the son, sadly, he, he reaches out to her, but he sees in her eyes departure and pure fear. And I just don't want you to get to that point, even if you're here at this conference. It could be that there's, it's not necessarily about God in a theological sense, but there's something, Paula White, my hero, a Pentecostal minister in Orlando, who I have strong admiration for, she, she will, there's something hidden, like Joseph von Sternberg said, 
There's something there, and it'll probably come out if you're lucky in the last minute and a half or hour of your life, like with Janet and Beth. But um, that's too capricious. You might not have that precious hour. So that's my final little fun point. Um, don't miss a chance to deal with that extreme place of unpleasantness before you go, because as we're mockingbirders, we believe that God can handle anything that has to do with ourselves. That's, uh, that's my little talk, uh, Drinks of Fizzy.